Oh man, hey guys. Well, it's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, man, it's just great to see you guys in this uh, 20 and 22. Way to brave the ice. I don't know, um, I, it, maybe you guys have the crimps on your, your boots and your cars, and that's how you got here today. But way to go, way to go, you know. I pretty much rolled down, my, my house is on like a steep hill, and I pretty much slipped all the way down it to my car before driving here. Uh, I, I'm sure many of you guys have similar stories. So great job, great job making it to church today, and welcome. Like I said, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull that out and open up to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26, uh, that's where we're going to be working from here uh, this morning. Um, it's such a great passage. It's such a great passage. Uh, Genesis is the first chapter of the Bible, and so just or the first, first book of the Bible. So just open that one up and oh, turn over until you hit a big number 26. Um, chapters in the Bible are a lot smaller than chapters in books, so you'll, you'll get there pretty quickly. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we have some place underneath the, the seat in front of you, so you should be able to find one there. But anyways, I want to welcome you to 2022. And um, we should recognize that, uh, <laughs> that we do enter this year uh, similar to how we entered last year, right? Uh, we we kind of have this cloud of the coronavirus pandemic that seems to never break, that seems to just still be um, uh, socking us in here. Um, and especially with this kind of Omicron surge, which um, likely influenced your Christmas and New Year's Eve plans like it did mine. Um, but, what, but this is what I love about the human spirit and, and, and what I'm, I'm still reminded of even into this year. And, and as I have more and more conversations with more and more people, um, all of us, most all of us, celebrated the new year coming in, in at least some way, shape, or form on December 31st. And, and, and that's because, I think, at least subconsciously, there, there's, there's something deep in our being that longs for a, a fresh start, isn't there? There's something deep within us that sees an opportunity for a fresh start, and we're like, yeah, I'm going to take that. That, that. that seems very life-giving. I'm going to reach out for that. And we do it each and every year when the clock strikes, strikes midnight on the 31st. Um, and, and that's because deep down within us, we, we all have this desire or this belief that the negative things from the past can, in fact, be erased. They can, in fact, be forgotten. And we can get a, a, a clean slate without all of the baggage of, of the old to try to take uh, the new steps that we want to take in different directions. Um, and and I, was, I was looking towards New Year's Eve this week. I mean, I was thinking, why do we, why do, we do this? Why do we push past and forget Everything that we ate at Thanksgiving. We forget everything we ate at Christmas, and, and now we have a new diet, right? It's great. You know, I'm, I'm not saying there's anything bad about that, but, but we were pushing back the fact that, you know, there's dust on, on my running shoes. Um, my bike tires are flat, okay? And not just, I have two bikes that are suffering from this condition right now, okay? But not this year. You know, this year I'm going to get out and I'm going to ride my bicycles more. Uh, but, but we could go down a, a long, long list of things we want to try differently this year with regards to how we spend our time, with how we spend our money, with how we invest in our relationships, how involved we want to be in our careers, our schooling. But what do all these point to? It, it, it points to a universal hope that all of us have that fresh starts are possible. 
We all hope that fresh starts are possible. We hope that all the negative things we've done that hinder us, that might hurt us, that might hurt others, that they can be done away with, that that can all be water under the bridge, left behind and washed away so that we can try again. Which is to say that everybody hopes, whether they call it this or not, that the central component of the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Everybody hopes that forgiveness is available, that shortcomings can be forgotten, that a fresh start is actually possible. Most of us, even the most cynical and and negative of us, that's me, okay, ask Pastor Dave, sometimes I, I rain on his parade far too often, poor guy, hope to capitalize, all of us, hope to capitalize upon what I call the common grace of a fresh start each and every year. And here's what this tells us. This is what our our resolutions tell us. The fact that we make resolutions as we enter into a new year or reach out for this common grace of a fresh start, it, it tells us that we're actually a little bit concerned. We're actually a little bit concerned with ourselves, doesn't it? that we're getting a little too fat, a little too lazy, a little too uh, um, unhealthy, a little too sinful, perhaps. We're all a little bit concerned, and that's okay, because that's actually God's grace to you. That's God's grace to you, that, that he has a perspective that he's sharing through this common grace, that you know what, you're, you're concerned that's the first thing that God does. Is he usually opens up humans' minds to, to the reality that they're in. And our reality is often, often a concerning one. And, and Jesus' followers, um, we're not only current concerned with ourselves as we enter into a new year. I'm going to invite you into this as well because it's probably present within you. But, but we're also concerned with the state of the church in the world. That's the big C church. We're, we're a little bit concerned with, with the state of the church in the world, but also the world itself as we look out. We're concerned as we look out, because as we enter into 2022, we look out and we see that the church and the world are increasingly fragmented. They're more and more fractured each passing month. They're divided. I don't have to point to these or rehash the difficulties of the past two years to highlight these and remind you that they didn't all magically disappear when the clock struck midnight on December 31st, two nights ago. But the church and our world have become increasingly, perhaps even alarmingly, fractured and fragmented. But the time frame is much longer than just the past couple of years. This has been going on for about two decades now. This is what people who are older than me tell me, at least. Okay. This, for, for some of us, we, we're in this fracturing, we're in this fragmenting, and it's the only reality we know of the church in the world. But in fact, it wasn't always that way. Over the past 15, 20 years, the church in the, the West is completely fragmented, but there used to be a unified movement of original historic Christianity that, that really unified and it picked up steam kind of in the 1940s. It was called neo-evangelicalism then. And, and its driving factors were to be faithful to Jesus and his scriptures, to do the work of evangelism, to do the work of serving and loving and caring for the poor, to do the work of, of growing Jesus' followers. It, it was a movement that was actually pretty theologically diverse and culturally diverse, and it was becoming more and more and more racially diverse as well. But over the last 15, 20 years, it's completely fractured completely fractured for, for a host of reasons, sin in the leadership, um, division over race and culture, and 
politics, uh, false teaching, abusive methodology by its leaders, some of its most prominent leaders and teachers, and it fractured. So nowadays, you really can't point to something in the, in the Western society and say, that's, that's where Christ, that, that's the movement that is holding on to Christ's message and carrying it forward in a unified way to the rest of the world. That's, that's no longer part of our culture. Um, but, but that's not the only thing that's increasingly fragmented over the past two decades. Our, as the church has been fragmenting, our society at large has also been fracturing and fragmenting too. Um, some call this the secularizing of, of society, but I just like to call it, um, it's, it's our post-Christian society. Because post-Christian just acknowledges that we're all living after the time that Christianity was, widely, was once widely accepted in the West, and, and, and now it's begun to wane and, and pass away. And, and the mark of a post-Christian culture is that its population still has those old Christian desires for, for justice, for peace, for equity, for accountability. But, but now the, the society looks at Christians as that, which, though that group of people which is uh, unhelpful and opposed to actually seeing those things come about. A post-Christian society wouldn't necessarily have those desires without the previous significant influence of Christianity and Western thought. And now it says, you know what, we've, we've tried that plan, tried their plan, we've got to get over here and try something else. That, that, that's the world we live in. It's post-Christian, but it's also fragmenting. It includes what we call the left and the right, both culturally and politically, and, and that world's also fragmenting. If you watch the post-Christian world try to hash out the issues of justice, equity, and politics, they can't do it. They, they, they can't do it. They can't do it in a way that brings social cohesion in our world. Every issue that we bump into just provides further and further fracturing and fragmenting and division under the leadership of our post-Christian society. It's, it's angry. It's divided. It's vengeful. It's ugly as we look out at it, right? So now I'm, I'm laying all this out, not because I want you to despair, okay? I, I'm not laying this out because I want you to despair at all, but I, I, I want us to be sober as we come to Genesis 26. Now, now you might not agree with me with how I just summarized that the fracture of the church and the fracture of society. Um, I only did it in a few minutes. In fact, I bet that if I, as I listen back to this, I'm going to be like, oh, that was a gross oversimplification. I would probably take issue with some of the ways that I just put that, okay? But I just want to get all these things out here um, just to highlight the fact that we can all agree that we're a bit concerned. We look out at the world, we're concerned. We look at the church in America, we're concerned. We look inside ourselves even, we're concerned. So we have these levels of concern on all levels that all of us carry, that we can agree and acknowledge, you know, that's there. That's there as we walk into a new year. And you know what? Dry January doesn't feel like it's going to cut it when it comes to solving those concerns. Although I'm doing it, okay? I'm doing it, okay? I'm doing it right along with you. So, but that's why we've come to Genesis 26, okay? And Genesis 26, is, it's a passage that in past, in previous years, I've flown right over in, in my Bible reading plans, and I'm pretty sure that if you're doing a Bible reading plan in, in 2022, that, that you would have flown over it here in a few days as well, except for the fact that we did the sermon. So now I hope it'll have a special meaning for you. I hope that it can be an enduring illustration for your year, actually. 
for God's people as we conceive of what a fresh start might look like in 2022. So, um, it's actually a passage that first came to my attention as I was reading a book by one of my favorite, um, favorite authors and, and teachers and preachers of, of the, the 1900s of the 20th century. His name is uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He actually died in the 80s, um, but he was a medical doctor who became a preacher, and so sometimes he's just referred to as the doctor, the doctor. He's a medical doctor who became a preacher, and he had a long ministry of about 40, 50 years the doctor. And he actually preached six sermons on revival out of two verses here in Genesis 26. Six sermons on revival. uh, That's the subject of God bringing his life back into his church again. Revival from from these two verses here in Genesis 26 that we're going to look at. Um, And here's what's happening in Genesis 26. Isaac, the son of Abraham, Isaac is the son of Abraham, and he's the one on display here. Um, Abraham has already died, um, but he is actually um, the steward, the custodian of the promise that God had given to Abraham when God told Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations through you. Through you, uh, Isaac, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. It's a great promise that Abraham held and, and, and walked out into in his life. And that, after his death, gets passed down to Isaac, God, God makes clear. And, and, and so God is with Isaac as he carries this, this promise to the nation. So you could even call it like this is almost like the gospel and just kind of seed form has been given to Abraham and passed to Isaac. And he's in, he's in charge of, of holding it. And eventually this promise is going to come to fruition and manifest in Jesus Christ. And then that's actually going to go for 2,000 years into all the nations through his church. And again, God is with Isaac. God's with Isaac. In fact, at, at the end of uh, Genesis 26, God shows up to Isaac and he says, Hey, I'm with you, Isaac. We're, we're, we're doing this. You're, you're holding this promise and I'm with you to make sure that it happens. And then even some people that Isaac is kind of living in and the nation with are like, oh man, we can sense that God is with you, they say to him. It's a very strange thing. God is with you. He's blessing you. He's got your back. Please make a treaty with us so that we're okay. <laughs> we're a little bit scared of you because of how much God seems to be, to be with you. So Isaac's the steward of this promise in which we now found, find life, but also in which we as God's people now steward like he did. We steward the same promise of, of hope and life and love for all the nations that, that, that Isaac has. It gets passed down to God's people through Jesus, passed down to his church. And the culture that Isaac was in, it was groaning, it was suffering. It was groaning because of a, a natural disaster, a drought, and a famine had, had unsettled and, and ripped through this, this population. And so you have a lot of people back then when there was a drought and, and your crops couldn't grow, you had to just be displaced and go somewhere else to try to find uh, where there was water, where there was life so that you could grow your crops and even water yourself so that you could live. And in fact, the, the nation in which he had lived, that the Philistines that he had gone to try to find water had kicked him out of his home. So Isaac, the bearer of God's promise, was displaced from his home, just completely displaced from his home. He had to find a new home. He has to rebuild and he has to start over. You feel this? You feel like you need to rebuild, that you need to start over after a hard couple of years? Genesis 26 is for you. And so he settled in this place called the Valley of Gerar. 
Yeah, the Valley of Gerar. This is where Abraham once lived. And he probably heard his father tell stories about this valley and that he had found water in that valley before. So he journeys to the Valley of Gerar and he begins to settle there. And I'm, I'm interested in telling this story um, because it tells the story of how someone who had God's presence and was carrying God's promise for the entire world, just like the church today, uh, started over and reestablished life again after famine, after drought, after hardship, after his life was interrupted, after he was exiled and, and on the brink of destruction. All right, so, so with that introduction, let's read it together in Genesis 26. <clears throat> Verse 17. So Isaac left there, camped in the Gerar Valley, and lived there. And Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, and that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. He gave them the same names his father had given them. Then Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of spring water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they argued with him. Then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. He moved from there and dug another, and they did not quarrel over it. He named it Rehoboth and said, For now the Lord has made space for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. You see, Isaac had an urgent need for water. For water. That was his need. He had an urgent need for water. That's what this whole paragraph is about. He was trying to find water. He was trying to establish a reliable source of water. That's what he was looking for. Why? Because water is the most basic need of life. It's almost synonymous to life itself. You need it more than food. You need it more than clothing. It's, it's life. Water makes everything else possible. So he, before he can build life or a home or get his prime delivery and his grub hub set up, he needs water. He needs water. So the point is this. Isaac, he's not looking for an improvement to his life. He wasn't looking for some escape from pain. He didn't need entertainment or a vacation to add some joy to his life. His need was more basic than that. He needed water. And, and, and I want to suggest that that's our situation as well. It's easy in our present circumstances to, to misdiagnose our need. That's why I love reading the doctor. The doctor brought to all of his teaching and all of his preaching kind of this medical outlook on diagnosing why Christians were struggling. He's like, you know, what? a lot of times what he noticed is that, you know what, you're actually not treating the core uh, disease that's actually uh, plaguing you right now in your faith. You're just trying to treat the symptoms. I want to suggest that our core need is water. In fact, I think we have a book on the back table called Spiritual Depression that was written by the doctor that does just that. He just walks through, uh, if you're miserable as a Christian, let's unpack that together. And it, it's great. You, I think you, you can take it for free with you today. It's by the doctor. But now, many of the years that have adorned our lives, or many of the things that have adorned our lives were taken from us in the past few years. They're gone now. And, and it's easy to think that we just need those things back. We, we just need to get back to playing and relating and working the way that we used to. And when that happens, we're going to be okay. Like, once everything gets back to normal, we'll be good. Now, while all those things are good things, and, and I want those things back too, we actually need something more basic than that is what I'm trying to say. That's why I spent a few minutes detailing those endemic problems that we're facing that are deeper than the coronavirus pandemic, that, that predate 2020. 
Our sickness is deeper than COVID. Do you see how terribly we, were, we responded to COVID? That's our sickness. That, that's our sickness. You see, the, the challenge we're living in is much deeper than we had a bad couple of years. Pandemic, politics, they're not our deep issues. When you see our situation more accurate, accurately, you realize we need something more basic than just to get our, our things back. We need water. We need water. And so this is what the doctor is saying in, 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 these, in these sermons from 1959. He said this, this is a quote. The trouble I see with the church today is that she does not realize, as she should, that her primary need is life itself. The problem confronting us is not a problem of methods or of organization or of making slight, a slight adjustment here or there or improving things a bit. It seems to me that we're really down to this basic issue. We need water. We need water. So how do we find it? How do we find it? Well, look at what Isaac, Isaac, Isaac did. It's right here in these verses. So Isaac reopened or redug the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham that the Philistines had stopped up after he died and gave them the same names that his father had given them. He didn't search for a new source of water. Isaac didn't go and prospect new wells. He didn't invent a new water technology. He went back to the old and the known sources of water, the proven sources of water. When you hear me say old, just hear me say proven, proven. It's very tempting to think, especially right now, we have new problems, we need new solutions, but the, 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 the need of water, the need of life itself for the church, the need of spiritual life, the life of God, this living water that Jesus talked about and, and that he said that he was, that's not a new problem. That's an old problem. It might manifest in a new way, but it's not a new problem. It may have presented us some different system or some, some different symptoms in a modern, fragmented society and, and in a church that's also fragmenting. But they predate 2020. It's old. Now, if you read earlier in Genesis, you'll see this. And this is fascinating. It, it's a, a theme uh, in Genesis chapter uh, 1 through 25 when Abraham dies. Abraham had a lot of flaws. And it's tempting to look at the Old Testament sometimes and see those characters and be like, these guys are heroes. You're not really tempted to do that so much with Abraham. <laughs> he was kind of a coward. He was kind of a scoundrel in some ways. He had a lot of faults just like your parents did. You know, if you've been through any amount of counseling, you've talked to the counselor at length about all the faults of your parents. You've examined them in detail. But you know, despite their faults, you would probably also say, you know what? My parents may have had all of these things that, that they did wrong, that they, they had faults on, but they could really do this. Or they were really good at this. And when you study Abraham, you discover the thing that he was really good at finding was water. <laughs> that guy could find water. Abraham was a water finder. He just had a nose for where to dig and where to find it, and that's what he did. And so Isaac reasoned, my need is urgent. I need water. I don't have time to mess around with innovation right now. What if I just went back to the old sources of water that are known, that are proven? My father was really good at finding water. And if you study the history of the church, you, you, you would learn that our condition today, it, it's not new. The church has often entered into periods of, of decay, of decline. It's also had its, its periods of, of growth and, and, and joy as well. It's, it's had both of these things throughout the entire history. 
the, the, the greatest example is probably tied to the greatest book ever written in church history by a, a guy named Augustine. Augustine wrote The City of God, and he wrote that in response to Christians who were freaking out because, the Ro- because Rome and, and the Greco-Roman world was fragmenting, it was fracturing, it was falling. It was a world that Christianity had flourished in, and Christians were freaking out. And he said, whoa, 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 you don't need to freak out. It's okay. There's a city of man, and there's a city of God, and God loves his church. That's what he called a city. He loves his church. He loves his city. He'll always be there to revive it and bring it back to life again. Don't freak out. The church has been through seasons of advancement, seasons of renewal, but also drought and difficulty, seasons of decay. And the church has found water over and over and over and over again. It's part of the beauty of us having a 2,000-year history is to see the, the, the growth, the advancement, and then the decline, but then that gets picked up again. The, the history of the church, it, it isn't just like starting Acts and it just excels like this. It's, it's much more like a stock market graph. Advancement, decline, advancement, decline. And so the church has found water over and over again. And if we're living through something right now that has happened many times in the history of the church, and we have the same need, we would be foolish not to learn from those who've gone before us about how they found water and drink from the same wells that they drank from, just like Isaac looked to Abraham. Now, now this idea is pretty difficult for modern people to entertain, especially Seattleites. Why? Because we love innovation. We love innovation more than anything. Here in Seattle, we're always focused on innovation. You could call it one of our central drives. We do have a lot of old problems, like going to the store to get toothpaste, and there's so much traffic, and you get to the store, and all they have is the Colgate gel. Ugh, I hate Colgate gel. If you, why we call toothpaste, like toothpaste that are gels, get the same name as it's still called toothpaste. That's not a paste, that's a gel. If you love Colgate gel, I'm sorry, I do not. But anyways, so we go home with the Colgate gel knowing we're going to brush our teeth with it for the next month, hot and bothered because gas prices are going up and all this. And so what do we do? We invent a new solution where Jeff can bring you your toothpaste that you wanted to begin with. You didn't even have to press pause on your Netflix Netflix TV binge that you were doing, right? Like, Like that's a great solution to a new, that's a great new solution to an old problem, trying to find toothpaste, trying to find a good toothpaste. To combat the pandemic, we came up with a new technology, mRNA. You see, we prize innovation above all else, and it can help solve problems, but surfing, um, searching for life again is not like ending the pandemic. When it comes to finding life, our society tells us to look elsewhere than the Christian faith. Don't dig up those wells again, right? We talked about this. The post-Christian society says, we already tried it. It doesn't work. It's counterproductive. Let's look elsewhere for solutions. And and if you've been around here for a bit, you've heard us talk about the experiment of Sedaris as a well. As a well. It's a project that we've embarked on that's apostolic. We're trying to start a new thing, a new church. But what is this new thing? We're actually trying to redig old wells. We're actually just trying to redig. So, so we're, we're innovative in, in, in how we try to get this well to provide people access to this old well. And so we, we work hard to make this living water of Jesus original uh, and, and historic, like, like he hopes it would be, that it's the same message that the church has proclaimed for 2,000 years. 
available to his people in the world in the midst of crisis and hardships because that's the thing that's given the church life over the centuries, especially in times of decay. Uh, Not new theology, not new attractions, not new methods, but old wells that have Jesus as the living water. What if we just need the old wells to be unstopped? A modern, innovative people struggle to entertain this thought because of the way we read history. We mostly look at history. Most of the history books that you read or the podcasts that you listen to are really focused on, 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 on unpacking and looking at and pointing at the faults of previous generations. We're generally negatively dis- disposed to previous generations. That, that's how we're taught to think of history. But when you study history, you'll see that there are, yes, massive errors in history that we should be sobered by and learn from, but also a great deal of wisdom to reap from there as well. We should study history, not just to expose errors. This is kind of how we're taught to do it, but to try to mine it for wisdom. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, any reading of church history will, I think, bring about this great principle abundantly clearly. You can imagine him reading it with his British accent that at any time you get one of these great, glorious, mighty periods, you will find that in every instance, it seems to be in returning to something that the church had already attained. Every time the church has revived, she seems to be doing what Isaac did. She seems to be going back to something that had happened before, rediscovering it and finding that ancient supply. Isaac said, what if there's wisdom in the previous generation that went before me? He could have just focus on Abraham's errors and and, and dismissed him. Like, you do not want to take marriage advice from Abraham. That guy abandoned his wife, left her up to dry a couple of times. Don't take his marriage advice. But he could find water. You could find how, he could help you find water. So Isaac had an appropriate view of his father, the good and the bad, the faults and the wisdom. So he went back to the old sources and he had to work hard to redig him. He had to dig him a couple times, just like we talked about there. But do you know what he found? They still worked. They still worked. So you see, real change in Jesus' followers and his church, it comes from real life. And real life comes from living water. And living water comes from going back to old wells and working hard to dig them up again. It takes a lot of work. It's not easy work. But, as, but, but we do it because as we look out across our city, we look out across our nation, as we look out across the world, as we look into our own hearts, we find that all of it is in dire need of life again. Life again. We can only conclude that it needs life. The life of Christ that brings, that brings true peace, true unity, true joy, true satisfaction. Jesus said that through relationship with him by the Holy Spirit, all that is available right now. Not in complete fullness, but a good dose of it, he says. I came that they might have life, have it abundantly. So what does this well project actually look like then, okay? What does it actually look like to tap into this old, proven, living water? I'm going to give you another historical example. I'm a history nerd sometimes, and today it's all coming out. I'm going to give you another historical example, though, okay? Have you heard of the story of another British guy, another British pastor named John Wesley? 
He was one of the co-founders of the Methodist Church, um, but he started off his, kind of, his uh, ministry career as a missionary, and he sailed across the pond to come down to Savannah, Georgia, to bring the gospel to the Native Americans. That was what his goal was. And after doing that for several years, he became increasingly miserable. He, his faith, he, so he, the way that he put it, is that he says, I started just to lack faith myself. I didn't know if it was all true. So he pulled the plug on that project and he went back to London. And when he went back to London, he came into conversation with a guy named Richard Braxton. Richard Braxton. And what Richard Braxton did was he began to diagnose what was going on in John Wesley's soul. And what he eventually found out was that John Wesley, this guy who had sacrificed everything to sail across the Atlantic to risk his life bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to Native Americans, had no conception, didn't understand justification by faith. And so uh, this is in John Wesley's journals. He had lots of conversations with, with, with Richard Braxton about justification by faith. And then a couple weeks later, he was at a church and they were reading a discourse from Martin Luther, uh, who was alive 200 years before John Wesley on justification by faith. And he says it, clicks for, it clicked for him. He felt the warming of his heart. And it's that experience that he calls his conversion, his, his conversion experience. Justification by faith, the old well of the gospel. And here's the kicker. Over the next 50 years, John Wesley would ride around on horseback, some estimate 20,000 miles, preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many historians say that England was spared a bloody revolution similar to that, that that they experienced in France. You know, the guillotine where they're chopping women, children's heads off because of his preaching and unifying the United Kingdom around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Old wells, going back to what's old to access God's life for people. But we saw it here. We saw it here. The Philistines are of every age are always trying to fill in that well. They're always trying to fill in the wells of God's people. It happened to Isaac. It happened in Martin Luther's time. It happened in John Wesley's time. It happens in our time as well. They, they, they stop up the gospel. They work against the notion of justification by faith, by dismissing Christ and dumping works-based systems into our society instead. They attach it everywhere. They created the jolly man in, in, in red who brings gifts based on what? A works-based system. A works-based system. They purport and, and perpetuate the silly notion of karma. Humans, as we're left to our own religious devices and our religious creations, we create a lot of things that look like Islam, works-based systems. But the life and teaching of Christ that says, while you are still active in rebelling against God, refusing to give him any claim on his life, even though he created you, he sustains you, he provides for you, Despite all that, he came to settle that dispute, even when we were still in it, and make the, tran- the necessary transaction on the cross so that we don't need a system that's based on transactions. All this while we were an unaware, even unwilling party to it. But praise be to God that he did it, because now we have access to his loving and his active presence in our lives All we have to do is acknowledge that he did it, acknowledge that there is a problem with our hearts, trust that Jesus paid it, the transaction, and will send his spirit to mend us now while looking forward to a day that he will return and complete it. 
Now that message might be unbelievable to you because the Philistines have thrown a lot of garbage in your well, in your heart, in your mind. There's lots of teaching that, that stop up old, old wells that often you have to, to make clear to people before we even start talking about justification by faith, that God acts on behalf of his people. That's a big thing, that God acts, that the scriptures are true. You can still wrestle with them, but that they are true, that humans aren't generally good people with the exception of a couple See that, like, there are these big things that the Philistines throw into the wells that stop up, that get in the way of anybody getting access to the living water of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and this is why Christians need to be deeply involved in old well projects that are obsessed with making Jesus' gospel clear to one another and clear to the world. It's the only way to really experience his life. Jesus never envisioned any of his disciples doing this alone. It would be an alien concept to him for his followers to try to pick up and, and access his life by themselves. It's made abundantly clear as we read through the Gospels and then see what this church looks like in the, in the book of Acts. So, this is my charge to, to us in 2022. First, that we make a, a deep and consistent effort to come to the well of living water on Sundays with one another. Now, th- this isn't a gym where we tie you down into a monthly payment and hope that you don't uh, show up and, and put wear and tear on our chairs. That's not how this works here. This is, this is the time where we come together and we sing about the, and, and, and teach about and, and look in God's scriptures for the life that he has for all of us as we gather together that we might experience it with one another. Where we declare that God does act, that his word is true. We can still wrestle, wrestle with it, but it's, it's true that we are struggling sinful beings in need of grace, and that grace comes about not by anything that we could do, but by what Jesus has already done. And when all those things are held together, regeneration happens, which is to say life bursts forth into our lives. Change that we're looking for happens. God extends the grace of living water to his people as they gather. Um, Next week, we're going to be starting a new series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians. And we're really looking forward to this series as we're going to be looking at the scriptures and, and getting back to the gospel of Jesus. It really unpacks what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like for Christians as they walk through their life. And so we would invite you to come to as many of those as you can. Uh, second, uh, join and get serious about a cohort. Um, our pri- we, we like to say our primary well workers are our cohort leaders. Uh, they, they work hard to provide space uh, for connection and conversation to happen so that people can consider God's word and perhaps experience uh, the conviction that comes by the Spirit uh, so that they can, in turn, take life to other people. And they can experience their life and take it to other people. That's cohorts. Um, Jesus, by the time he got to the cross, he had about 100, a little over 100 followers. But he was always breaking down into just this smaller group of 12 to talk about the word of God and help apply it to, lives, to, to their lives a little bit more precisely. And, so we, we, and that's something that over the course of history, Christians have always needed smaller spaces to unpack what the word of God is doing uh, in their hearts and, and how they might be able to, uh, to uh, obey God and, and follow him in this life. Um, and so our, our, co- our cohorts are starting up again for the winter trimester. Dave talked about that. We'll have a, a kind of a catalog of 
of, who, of who's leading them and where they're, they're meeting. Um, next week, we'll have that ready for you. So if, if you, likewise, if you are thinking, you know, I think I want to perhaps even not just join one, but I might even like to roll up my sleeves and be kind of one of these primary well workers that provides space and, and helps people have conversations or even just helps people serve our city um, in the cohort format, come and talk to me. Send me an email, ryan at sedariuschurch.com. Uh, perhaps we can help you uh, start your own cohort, or I know there's a couple cohorts that are even looking for some additional leaders to come alongside them. We can start that conversation together. But thirdly, uh, the third charge here is, is just to, to, to step into serving at church. Uh, there's no better way to taste and experience the, the living water of Christ than to be down in the well shoring up its sides or to be the one that's pulling up the bucket to try to help other people get that living water and drink it. Uh, well, projects have so many opportunities to serve, and, and Sedaris is no different. If you're sitting on, on musical gifts, let's talk about what serving in the band could look like. If you're, if you're a warm and thoughtful, engaging presence, let's talk about what maybe a Sunday experience team member could look like. You can even help bring living water to our children on Sundays, too, by serving in that area. You see, these are not only great ways to help, but incredible opportunities just to get close to and experience and taste the living water of Christ as well. So this is all to say that, that, that make 2022 the year that you draw close to the well of Jesus' church and see what God does. See what it does and, and see what life God extends to you as he renews you, as he regenerates you. You see, Jesus himself is the living water, but it was his plan for that water to be extended to his followers by way of their gathering for worship and ongoing unity with one another. And so after a few years, like the ones that we've just had, we're all a bit concerned about our relationship with Jesus. That's, that, that, that's not where it should be, that your efforts and your plans towards reading the Bible and praying perhaps aren't where they should be. And so you have some new ideas for how to engage those practices, and that's great. But coming to environments around the well are going to be those things that actually give you the life to pursue those things in the best way and pursue those things continuously as we go throughout the year. Because the Christian faith is both inherently communal and inherently missional. So when you attach yourself to a well project, that's actually what extends the life of God to you so that you can go out and, and pursue bringing his life into your own life, the life of your friends, your neighbors, and the world.